0: And the organizations wanted to do this properly. They wanted people to have confidence and be serious about the fact this was going to work. So what they did is they sent their engineers out to explain to customers exactly how this new technology would work. And what happened was is that the engineers would get questions from their customers. Customers will ask questions like, so how does this work? And the engineer's like, I've waited my whole life for somebody to ask me this question. And thirty-seven minutes later, they come up for air and the poor customer is now confused, thinking, well, what I really want to do is to do what I've always done. I want something safe. That's just like too much information. for. Me. And it was affecting conversion rate, it was slowing down the rollout. It was stopping them from being able to actually make progress. And then I found myself in a conversation that was like, well, how do we change this? What do we do to make it different? And the sequence of words that was presented back was when somebody asked the question, so how does this work? The response was quite simple. The response was the words, it works great.
1: Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Phil M. Jones. He's the author of the mega best-selling sales book, Exactly What to Say, The Magic Words for Influence and Impact. And today is a special Thanksgiving holiday weekend episode from our archives. It's a replay of one of our most popular episodes of the past year, in this case, with my guest, Phil M. Jones. So, in my conversation with Phil, we're talking about exactly what to say and the magic words for influence and impact. Personally, I really like Phil's book. He provides incredibly simple but effective takeaways about simple phrases that any seller can incorporate into their day-to-day selling that open the doors to in-depth conversations with buyers, and that help you understand and effectively answer objections, and words that thoughtfully challenge a buyer's perspective, and more. So we also dive into some of the examples of magic words from Phil's books, including one of my favorites that you can use to help your buyers visualize what success would look like for them. So all of this and much, much more, but before we get to Phil, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast, wherever you listen to it, and if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could leave us a review, give us your feedback about how we're doing. So, thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Phil, welcome to the show. It's good to be here, Andy. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you here. Uh, as I mentioned in the intro, this you're the author of what I consider a really excellent book titled Exactly What to Say, The Magic Words for Influence and Impact. And I, I think one of the reasons I was taken with the book is that aligns with so much of what I, I believe about sales is about what are the simple things you can do, the easy things you can do that have sort of an outsized impact. You bet. And it's sort of the antithesis of sort of the, a lot of the cumbersome corporate sales training that seems to be <laughs> what most people revert to. Right. Yeah. So what was the, what was the inspiration to write the book? I think the inspiration was was multifaceted
0: really is is I entered the world of sales and then sales leadership from a ridiculously young age. At uh, you know, 14, 15, 16, I was running companies. At the age of 18, I was a sales wait, wait, manager. Wait,
1: wait, wait, what type of companies were you running in, as a teenager? You bet. Um,
0: I had a car cleaning business at the age of 14, had kids in the year below me that were providing the service, was making more money than my school teachers by the age of 15. Um, <laughs> that ventured into a number of other things. But I, I, I hit senior leadership positions in, in retail sales at a very mm-hmm. early age because I wanted to get that corporate um, understanding. I wanted to understand big business right. principles, etc. But the trouble is when you're in those early leadership positions is you face a lot of prejudice. You face a lot of pushback of, mm-hmm. of, of people that have been doing what they do for a long time. Right. And like, Who are you to teach me? <laughs> yeah, well, I, and, I had that in my first sales management job, yeah. You're right. So I was always curious around what is it What does it really take to be successful? And we all know that hard work and vigor and product knowledge and knowing enough about your customers and research and all these things are really important, but what gives people the edge? So I learned a lot from studying people who are better at stuff than I did. Mm -hmm. And then I followed that same belief all the way through my career and then have worked in like 800 different industries. And I started to see this recurring pattern time and time and time and time again. The difference between those that did good and those that did great is the ones that were doing great always knew that their words mattered. They knew that Mm -hmm. the worst time to think about the thing they were going to say is in the moment they were saying it. They didn't focus on being scripted or following somebody else's script. What they did is they built conversational tracks, they built triggers, they built little frameworks that would help Mm -hmm. them in the recurring scenarios they could find day in day out. And then I started to see patterns in that. So I'd always been like really, really fascinated about word choices. And what then happened is the writing of the book was almost an accident. So, first things first is in the variety of my trainings from me starting my sales training business, I'd always sprinkle in what I would call some magic words. Mm-hmm. People liked it. It was like the, the 3% of the big yeah. training program, but it was always the takeaway. It was the right. thing people would talk Absolutely. about in the bar. Absolutely. Afterwards. Absolutely. And it's the thing people would ping me a note on like six months afterwards on a LinkedIn mm-hmm. message. And they're like, hey, I've been using that and it works. I thought, that's cool. And then what happened is I found myself in a mastermind program with some other speaker friends of mine. And um, they said to me about how hard it was to write a book. And bear in mind, we were talking 2010, 2011 at the time. And not so much to write it, but to get it published. And I'd had some exposure towards some of the self-publishing platforms and things that could be used. And I said, it's not that hard. You could turn a book around in like two weeks. And then my big mouth got me into trouble in the same mastermind, right? They're like, well, prove it then, Jones. Yeah, write your book in two weeks, right. So I did. What I did is I took a training program that I delivered just the week prior called Mm -hmm. Magic Words, and it was the 17 words for influence and impact. It was a a short training with a PDF accompaniment to support non salespeople who are in customer service and telemarketing roles. And I turned it into a book, and it was like not a real book. It was more like a pamphlet but I still published it through the right programming mm-hmm. and, and it did pretty darn well. Yeah. Like it did really well, but it wasn't all that good. Like I turned it out quickly, but it became my lead capture, my giveaway piece. It became something that would accompany trainings. And then 2017, I went through my geographic move from the UK to the U S and I'm like, I got to do something new. I'm going to release a new book and then i went through the process of all the new books that i thought about writing and then i realized that, hang on i got a greatest hits that's never been treated as a greatest mm-hmm. hits so i went back and i rewrote magic words properly and i renamed it exactly what to say yeah and and that's what got us to 2017 and i think the fuel behind it is people want the easy button yes they want to understand that there are deep rooted principles this is coming right. from the position of authenticity but right. hey I'm like Show me like something that works, and then I'll learn how it works or why it works right but I, but I want to know it works before I do the work before the work and, and I think that's why this resonates so much um because there's an instant application there's like I could have well, used that yeah. yesterday yesterday I can use it this right. afternoon and I can definitely use it tomorrow
1: yeah and I absolutely you know, for people who haven't read the book I urge them to go out and buy it and read it yeah I mean I I have to admit, I went through the first time probably in thirty minutes.
0: Right, yeah. it's, a, it's it's a quick
1: book. I mean, I, I sat down. I budgeted like two to three hours to read it because you know, I read all my the yep. all my guests' book. I read when they come on the show, <laughs> and, I, and I walk out. I walk out my office after half an hour, and my wife goes, "I thought you were reading a book." I said, "Done I said, it." I, I said, "I love this book. <laughs> I went through it in half an hour." This is the way books should be. So, well, you
0: you know the importance of knowing your audience. Yeah. I don't know many sales professionals
1: that enjoy spending eight hours with their head between pages. Well, yeah, and then you've got the publishers that oftentimes insist, you know, this, like my second book, you know, the publisher came back after we had signed the contract, said, look, we need another 20,000 words because this just isn't right. long enough. And it's like, <laughs> what are you talking about? Well, there are very few clients that wish for a longer sales presentation, right? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so yeah, I want to want to go through some of the magic words. Um, okay. But I want to start at the back of the book, because uh, that was one of my favorites, is the story about your friend Roger yeah. being asked to explain how technology worked. So so tell us that story, because uh, I love it. It's it's it, This is one of the, to me, one of the great parts of the book, and it's a problem that sellers, especially in tech, run into time and time and time again. So tell us the story. The, there's a principle I have
0: that is the anybody looking to buy anything needs to know enough information to make a decision. Mm -hmm. And that word enough can mean different things to different people. The story you refer to in the book was where this became glaringly obvious to me for the very first time in my professional career. And I was having a conversation with a, with a friend and client of mine at the time called Roger, who was, who was like so deeply involved in the telecommunications industry. He was in the room when the first text message was invented Mm -hmm. and, and then out in the UK, like that's how deep rooted he was in it. And we were having a conversation about the rollout of um, of VoIP technology. Right. And this was when VoIP technology was new to independent businesses and and organizations were trying to introduce it to small businesses and say, hey, you don't need those analog phone lines anymore. You need VoIP. And the organizations wanted to do this properly. They wanted people to have confidence and be serious about the fact this was going to work. So what they did is they sent their engineers out to explain to customers exactly how this new technology would work. And what happened was is that the engineers would get questions from their customers. Customers will ask questions like, so how does this work? Right. And the engineers like, I waited my whole life for somebody to ask me this question. And thirty-seven minutes later, they come up for air and the poor customer is now confused, thinking, well, what I really want to do is to is to do what I've always done. I want something safe. That's just like too much information for me. And it was affecting conversion rate, slowing down the rollout. It was stopping them from being able to actually make progress. And then I found myself in a conversation that was like, well, how do we change this? What do we do to make it different? And the sequence of words that was presented back was when somebody asked the question. So, how does this work? The response was quite simple. The response was the words: "It works What's great. great? <laughs> it works great." And nine customers out of ten are like, "Well, I'm good. We're great. Great is good." And the conversation could move forward to implementation, to application, to getting the job done. Uh, Yet, I one just... in ten would want to be like, yeah, well, "Well, tell me some more."
1: I mean, but this was up the process. <laughs> it was one of the most. Brilliant things I've read in a long time. I mean, I'm just I, as you can see me. I'm smiling yeah. and laughing when you talk about because it, it's <laughs> it's perfect, right? You're not <laughs> shortchanging the customer. You're not being glib. You're giving them basically what they want to hear at that right. point, especially if they're talking to a salesperson. Is yeah, it works great, <laughs> and I think I've used that in the past. But when I, <laughs> I was stuck for an explanation, but it it's really it's it's genius in my mind I, I just think that if sellers would think about that instead of being this fall back to the temptation to think okay well i've got my serve yeah product knowledge and maybe if it's technical price i sort of understand let me sort of try to work through this instead yeah. of trying to bs their way through it it says yeah yeah we got and confusion creates chaos in the right. decision making process right? It, right is 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 somebody doesn't
0: have uh, you know, a full level of confidence in the outcome they're going to get from the decision right. they're going to make, right. then they remain paralyzed to make their decision. Right. And I think what many salespeople and sales professionals forget is their role is to be the guide, is to lead somebody through the decision-making process. Mm-hmm. And, and, and many confuse that with trying to explain to the other person how much they know about their thing. Right. Yeah, which isn't what anybody consulted their advice for in the first place. It was help me with
1: my problem, right. not explain what you know about that thing. Right, and it's too easy to confuse people. Yeah, that that one. So there's an example. Magic words, very simple. Uh, and I think <laughs> I think for what the customer is looking for at that point in time, that's exactly what they want. It's basically comfort and permission to. Well, let's keep the conversation going at this point.
0: And there's a layer behind that
1: for anybody listening in
0: right now that's like, yeah, but like my people, right, my people would want to know more. And I know that's true. But what happens next after you say it works great? For the people who want to know more, they ask a better question. Right. They don't ask, how does it work? They say – yeah, but what would its impact be on downtime for the calls that I'm going to be making next week? Is there a time of day that this would work best? Like they actually get towards what is their real issue that they were asking the first question right. for? So really, it's a response that is as
1: useful as a clarifying question. Well, it's a trigger, right? Yeah, that's why I look at that's that's a trigger, and. Yeah, you, triggers could be questions that you ask but they could also be responses you give too, which right. is Right. And it just filters out what was the real situation they were right. looking for you. Exactly. Which is, is really the question or not the question, but the point about objections, right, is is everybody wants to talk about managing objections and handling objections it's like, well, objections are just a question. So, right. how do you, how do you get the question out?
0: Right. And how do you help them then answer the question right. that's being focused in their head? And how right. do you stand alongside them towards an answer
1: that is the one that is right to go the distance long-term? Yeah. I mean, no one's actually objecting to anything. I mean, its I don't know how we got that word into sales, right? Here's our price. Yeah, I object to that price. It's like, <laughs> no, you don't. Yeah. You, you no, might I'm not like it. Like, is it really worth it? <laughs> yeah. You find the pricing objectionable? I, I don't think so. Yeah. All right. Another funny favorite of mine was uh, your how open-minded phrase. Yeah. So, Tell us about that because that's that's a very interesting one as well. Well, in the world of sales, we're often looking to
0: present new ideas to people, mm-hmm. whether it's choosing us as opposed to their incumbent supplier, whether it's buying more of the thing that they used to be able to buy, whether it's introducing a new product. like, like We're looking to be able to create these invitations into their world that they haven't right. yet given permission for. It happens time and time again. And when we live in a world that is also fearful of rejection, right. I put a lot of work into creating rejection-free opening formulas. Right. So the question, how open-minded are you, is really based on a couple of things. Is One is if I asked a room of a 1,000 people who in this room would see themselves as open-minded, I know that at least 900 hands would raise. Mm-hmm. So I have a fact that the whole world likes to see themselves as open-minded. Yes. Because I'm pretty sure the other 100 hands wouldn't raise regardless of what I offered, even right. if it was like cake or $50 bills. <laughs> right. So... Um, we take that fact and we apply it to another principle that you and I know remarkably well, which is it's the person who's asking the questions that's in control of the conversation. Mm-hmm. So if I wanted to insert an idea into somebody's head and have like 90, 10 chances of them giving me a chance, giving me an opportunity, mm-hmm. I could use the preface, how open-minded would you be to? Right. And in doing so, it becomes pulley and not pushy. It's like, well, well, sure, tell me some more about that. Right. And, you know, how open-minded would you be to learning how many other people in your situation are saving as much as $100,000 a year with our new solution? Right. Or how open-minded would you be to grabbing lunch next week to understand how we might be able to support you better in the next quarter? Mm-hmm. Or even as a sales professional saying to their boss, like, how open-minded would you be to uh, exploring some thoughts I have about how we can be more efficient in the organization? Right.
1: Yeah. No, it's I- almost impossible to say no, right? It's almost impossible. Yeah. Well, I mean it's it's I use something similar to that. It's instead of would how open minded, it's like would you be open to a discussion about? And
0: let's just catch the nuance difference, right? Right. Is is would you be open to a discussion is closed with a yes no response? And sure it's fueled with curiosity, sure it's laced with the openness that's being asked of the other person. Mm -hmm. Yet it's still black or white. True. And when you say, would you be, it's like, well, of course I would. There's a level of friction that exists in that question that doesn't mean it's not going to work. It just means that there is an efficiency that could be improved if the question was wider. Mm-hmm. Hence why the preface how says, yeah. well, we are suggesting there are levels of open-mindedness. Right. Which I'm not sure there are. <laughs> but the acceptance of the fact that you are suggesting there could be right. means that we're on a sliding scale of like, how much of an idiot do you need to be to say no? Right. So I'm like 90, 95, 97 in my favor.
1: Yeah. So is there an element? And I was wondering when I was reading this. Okay, so you ever encounter like there an element of shaming in in saying that?
0: If we were to take it to its very crudest of end, then perhaps yeah. yes. Yes. I think if you are a person of integrity and that you are choosing your timing of where you would utilize a sequence of words like this, mm-hmm. then then probably not. Yeah. Yeah, psychologically speaking, it's rooted in the same the yeah. same behavioral ones.
1: Well, yeah, because people don't admit they're not open minded, right? Especially yeah. somebody that's supposedly in a position of authority, looking at buying something. You bet. I'm supposed to be the expert. How could I be closed-minded, right? <laughs> um Okay, another one I like. Word swaps. So this one is interesting. So we <laughs> can have fun with this. Yeah, turning an open question into a closed one. So so talk about this. Um well,
0: let's just apply it to to the audience that I know are listening to this very much so, is that many of you find yourself in the situation where you are delivering presentations, proposals, pitches, etc., to others, hoping to be able to get a response. Mm-hmm. And I'm guessing at least once in your life, you've heard responses like, um, I just need some time to think about. It. Right. I'm guessing that's come at least once. I'm also guessing that at least twice, you finished a presentation of that nature with words like... Do you have any questions? Mm -hmm. And see, when you say the words, do you have any questions, what are you suggesting the other person should have? Questions. Right? (laughs) And if you've done your job right, what are you hoping they don't have? Well, questions, yeah, to some degree, right? Right. Yeah. If you've done your job, right, you're hoping that they don't have questions. You've suggested they should have and that you're aware that perhaps they don't. So now you've made them think, what am I missing? What am I missing? What am I missing? What am I missing? Because they're thinking that they are missing something because you've suggested that they are missing something. Mm-hmm. They say things like, I need some time to think about it. i got right. to speak to my partner. Can you send me some more information? Can you put it in an email? Right. And you created that moment because you finished your presentation with the question, do you have any questions? Yep. A simple swap changes things in its entirety. Instead of saying, do you have any questions, just swap the words to, what questions do you have for me? Yep. Now, in the same environment, Andy, we'll play this out with predictability. If I said to you, what questions do you have for me, typical response would be, no questions. Right? Which in turn means that they have all the information they need to make a decision, which also means they've made a decision. hmm which means you now don't need to ask for a decision. You simply lead them to the action that follows the decision with words like the next step is. Right. Or what happens next is. Because people are looking to be led. Mm-hmm. They're looking to be steered through the dance. So I, I'm often looking to tweak tiny little subtle word changes mm-hmm. that, that create demonstrably different
1: outcomes. Right. Yeah, well, I think that also there's there's an element there I find that that sorry, having to do with quantification, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you're saying, uh, just example I use, because I, I agree with you about the do you have versus, and I yeah. prefer the what questions, is like if someone's to ask you, so do you know any good restaurants around here? Yeah. As opposed to, so well, what well, are the well, one or two restaurant. best restaurants around yeah. here? Yeah. Yeah. You'll get an answer. If you ask, what a, are the good restaurants good city, around here? Right. They struggle. Yeah. Correct. It is quantified,
0: right? Is yes. you know, there was only one restaurant you could go to in New York City? What would the one be? Is <laughs> more likely to get a response than do you know any good restaurants around here? Because people would say, "Well, like, like they're all good restaurants." There's loads of great restaurants. Right. I mean, you struggle to find a bad one, and you're like, well, "That was useless."
1: Yeah, yeah. So that's why I think that's a great a great swap mm-hmm. is that that quantification issue and think about that. Uh, another one I like is uh, just out of curiosity. I, I find myself <laughs> saying that all the time. I've used, I don't know where I got that in my, early in my career, but yeah, it's very effective. Sometimes
0: difficult questions require permission. And you can ask just about anybody, just about anything, if there is a purpose for the ask. And sometimes you have to create the purpose before you make the ask. Yeah, i give you an example again that just leads towards maybe the objection we just talked about, that I need some time to think mm-hmm. about it. I, and everybody else know listening doesn't mean they're going to do a SWOT analysis or five bar gates about whether they will or won't move forward. Right? We right. know that. Right. It's a stall. I'm pushing it away for another day. Yep. And more often than not, when you hear that, what you are is frustrated. And that you want to be able to get some truth from people. You want to be able to say things like, what is it? Just tell me what you want to think about. We don't say that because that's rude. Right. Yet you can say that. If you preface it with a softener that gives you permission to be able to make rude, obnoxious questions. Mm -hmm. And that softener is a sequence of words like just out of curiosity. It gives you permission to make bold asks. So in that environment, you could say just out of curiosity, what is it specifically you need some time to think about? And then you could zip it. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't say zip it. What I'm saying is like shut your mouth for a second. Right. Or well, we could turn it up a little further, right? We could say just out of curiosity, what is it that would need to happen for you to make a decision over something like this? Right. And now we create these awkward pauses that they allow the other person to fill it with truth that you can then navigate your next move based on that truth. Sometimes you find things like, like, like well, when we started this inquiry, we were given a budget for redevelopment and I found out yesterday we got nothing. Mm-hmm. I found out it's gone. So I'm really sorry to have wasted your time. And, like, and like you're back into a position that you could craft the next move in a comfortable mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. But sometimes you find out, like, you ask big brave questions like that, and they say, you know what, you're right. There isn't
1: really any more to think about. Like, like let's just do this. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, in either direction, right? I mean, to the one example, yeah, we lost budget. It's like, yeah, hey, I'll be back in a few months. We'll talk again, right? right.
0: And now you and could have that transparent Good, good information to have. Yeah.
1: Instead of you thinking it was you, or
0: they don't like your product, or they don't like your offer, it's like you get to the truth of like just not right now, and here's why. And now it's like same side again.
1: Yeah. Well, I think the thing that's important for people to to keep in mind when you when you hear these things is, you know, this is not manipulative. This is just asking people the right questions in the right way. And I find it hilarious, Andy, right? I have some, some one star reviews about my book,
0: right? We've sold almost a million copies. Mm-hmm. We've got you know, every contrast of, of, of different levels of perception as to whether right. this was genius or whether it's the worst thing ever. And, and one thing I, I've learned from reading the, the one star reviews is it tells me a lot about the mindset of the individual. And it makes me think about the difference between persuasion and manipulation makes me think about that real hard. Mm. And I think I've understood what the difference is. The difference between persuasion or influence and manipulation is merely integrity. Now, some of the tools to get to either one of those directions could be the same tools. Sure. But what you use them for depends on who you are as an individual. Right. I've studied enough about your work to know that you care about the consequences of every sale that happens. To the point that the promise that was made at the point of the transaction mm-hmm. should be something that goes on to deliver right. to at least what was promised, perhaps even more. though. More that. That's how relationships are built, and that's yep. where future business comes from. So if you're going to use tools like this to, to win the short game and to try and put a fast buck in your pocket, then, then that is manipulative. If you're going to use tools like this to help people to make smart decisions that go on to be able to be mutually beneficial for both, then those people end up saying thank you for it in the long run. And that's the group of people I'm talking to right. or assuming that I'm always talking to.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, so part of the, I think one of the primary roles of a seller is to be able to help the buyer understand the problem they're trying to solve. You bet. And I think, see, I I, I, I think persuasion and influence the way it's practiced in sales are two opposite camps. And so I separate. I, I, could, I could see where you're going with that too. Yep. So, so for me, it's what you're trying to do is you're trying to influence the choices and the trade-offs that the buyers make that help them arrive at a decision. Whereas if you're yeah. sort of persuasion-based, you assume there's only one outcome, which is to buy your product. And mm-hmm. you just focus on that. And that's sort of like yeah, a, yeah. that's like a blunt hammer, right? And so Yeah, I think we're on the same page on that. Yeah. And so I, I agree. And so I think these these magic words, these phrases and so on, yeah, possibly could be used for manipulative purposes. But they're really there. They're just out of curiosity. Would you be open-minded? Is is are you open to learning more? Right. about what it is you're trying to accomplish.
0: And there are also tools to keep you in the conversation. Yeah, tools to keep the conversation going. Right. One thing I found fascinating about the world of sales is this is this desire that people want to keep running everything towards the close. Like the close is this finite finish line that happens once, and then right. the fanfare comes. Whereas my approach is like, how do you stay in the never ending story? How do you make this never finish? Mm -hmm. And if it's a no, it's a no, not right now. And you know why, and Mm -hmm. you know where your next move might be and when that next move might be able to play out or you understand how that relationship might, might influence some other future beneficial outcome. And if it's somebody who says yes, and that piece of business gets agreed, like, like where are the next checkpoints? Where Mm -hmm. can this be developed towards? Like, Mm -hmm. like it is a never ending story yet. So many corporations want it to be a race to a finish line. And the trouble with that race to the finish line is then the experience stops. The relationship
1: stops. And sometimes the employee is now moved on to the next thing in this this world too. Increasingly. I mean, certainly in SaaS sales, I mean, we've gone into very specialized sales roles, which, you know, there's now, after sort of doing this for 15 years, people are now coming back around saying, well, huh, is this really the right way to do it? Because, to your point exactly, is we create these friction points. So, for handing off from an SDR to an AE. Yeah. And then, once you actually close the deal, I consider, you know, one of the most important sales calls that ever happens is the first call you make on the client after you sign the deal. Yep. And, but that first call, and oftentimes now, is, well, that's a handoff to an account manager, you know, customer success manager. That's another friction point. And yep. to, your, to your point exactly, is is that really the right way we want to do it? It depends on the outcome you're
0: looking for. Yeah, And if it's about short-term goals and profitability in the quarter, then maybe yes. If it's about going the distance long-term and building lasting
1: relationships that grow, then perhaps not so. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because there's a lot more talk, even just in the last month on LinkedIn with and This is whether it's a groundswell or who knows, but it's it's more and more conversation about yeah we need to bring back the full lifecycle seller, mm-hmm. and and uh, yeah we sort of gotten. I do believe that we can. We certainly need some more airtime for that
0: because what's happened in the last decade, fifteen years, is is there's been this huge growth and Sprint what we now are is at a point where there is a huge amount of saturation and there is confusion again amongst mm-hmm. the consumer. And the confusion means that they need experts and they need confidence and they need people right. that they can trust. And it's hard to actually win trust instantaneously in a
1: crowded market.
0: Like you <laughs> earn trust over a series of periods right. of time.
1: Well, I'm laughing because yeah, often a company and SaaS company, you talk, look at training for SDRs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Your job, you're going to build trust on this cold yeah. call. It's like you're not going to build trust on this cold call. I mean, it's, the expectation is false that we would put on them, that you would build trust. It's not your not your failing as an individual. This just I, doesn't. I've been asked that question on
0: numerous occasions
1: by large right. SaaS companies saying, "Can you like produce a
0: 60 minute virtual training that we can plug into our internal protocols to train all our new hires so they know exactly what to say in order to be able to win trust from consumers in a first time focal." And I've said that I would not be able to do that and remain integrative, like remain with integrity. Like right. it's just not going to work.
1: Yeah, and again, it's not a failing of the individuals. It's just the process, right? Building right. trust is takes time. Well, you don't
0: get married on the first date, right? That, that's highly unlikely to happen. Like I'm not saying it can't. It's just right. highly unlikely. Like yes. that wouldn't be like. Let me teach you the formula to get married on date one,
1: right? Yeah, yeah, we wouldn't get many many success stories out of that. <laughs> right? uh, but it, Yeah, I mean it's it this sort of is so interesting. i am curious on your your take on this. Cause there's there was a guy who published a post on LinkedIn this week, and he's been on my show, and we've gone head to head this because I think he's just crazy and misleading people saying he says relationships are no longer important in sales. And the question I have for you is where is his bias? Well, his I think his two two things. One is clearly to this person, relationship only means friendship. Okay. And if that's the case, I would tell him, as I told him, I said, <laughs> I've been in sales 40 plus years, sold hundreds of millions of dollars of uh, large stuff around the world. I was never friends with my buyers. Friendly. Yeah, They weren't my friends. I mean, they weren't sitting by the phone waiting for me to call and have a conversation. But we had a relationship. And, you know, a relationship is just defined as the way two or more things are connected, two more things or people are connected. So by virtue of yep. selling to someone you're connected, the relationship is not The
0: only time where having a relationship in the world of sales is not entirely important is when the relationship between the customer base is so tight that the trust exists there, that that's what creates the safety in numbers mm. for people to have trust within the product offer. Sure. And an example of that may well be with you know many many user based software platforms. Mm. Like, for example, is is I use a product called Ecam Live to right. do a number of virtual presentations and pieces. Yeah, I've used it. Yep. I don't have a relationship with anybody eCam uh, Ecamm Live, but I am part of communities of other like-minded people like me that like Ecamm Live. So my relationship with the product and the organization is 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 with this community of customers. And, and I think people lose sight of the fact that just because the relationship-building responsibility now exists with somebody else doesn't mean that building relationships
1: isn't important. Right, right. In his case, though, we were talking specifically about where a seller is involved, right? Because Ecamm Live, you know, you just buy online and you don't need to interact with the seller at all. Sure. but I mean we're seeing this in medical device right it, it is in um,
0: I do a lot of work within the hearing care profession I do a lot of work with the major manufacturers they've had filled sales representatives for quite a significant period of time yep. they've been paid at a high level they've huge, huge autonomy over their role they've right. had the responsibility of lunches and dinners and remembering birthdays and building relationships and taking care of people and helping solve the little problems that come up on the way that they've been very much that front face my guy my girl mm-hmm. of taking care of things and you're seeing things happen in this direction where you know major healthcare manufacturers are are, are saying things like you know we're going to shoot a lower caliber of person with a lower price point that we're going to have somebody who can update salesforce with a high level of integrity mm-hmm. and, and and provide transparency that way and then i have the ability to be able to speak to the customers and the customers are like i really miss my rep mm-hmm. And now what you're starting to see happen in these environments is when that rep relationship piece disappears, loyalty gets questioned. Yep. Now, all of a sudden, sure, I'm happy to keep buying from this manufacturer all the time nothing is broken. But then when something is broken and I've got not that chain to be able to get it done quickly, now it's like, well, where can I go instead? Now you've got a exactly. new SDR that is hungry, that right. is chomping on the door, offering a slightly better price. And that slightly better price would have been a, see, ya, you don't get in for lunch. But now they're in for lunch. Uh-huh. And now they're like, well, I've got no reason to stay. I've got no reason to stay.
1: And that's where the relationship piece kicks I, I agree, in. yeah, hundred. percent And I think it it exists to a much greater degree than people want to acknowledge because there's a seeming need on the part of some people to try to build this narrative that is just not important. And so well, you it see it and you see it, you know, with people putting out surveys saying, "Well, you know the millennial buyer doesn't want to talk to a salesperson." And well well, you know my passion for words. Yeah. When
0: I hear an organization talk about churn then I know they don't care about people because what they're looking at is they're looking at the spreadsheets Mm -hmm. of how many people paid their subscriptions and where that drop-off point was. They're not thinking about that there was a human-to-human connection in here somewhere and the reason that person now no longer pays you money could
1: have been because of the fact that nobody showed them they cared about them. Yeah, very likely that's the case. Yeah, Yeah. there was was a a, well. There was a, a study done on churn. I don't know within the last five years. I I forget who it was. It was Oracle or somebody. Yeah, they said it's gotten to the point, to your point precisely, that oftentimes now, given that there is no anchor relationship that's sort of there, is the first hiccup from a customer success or customer service causes churn. The first. And, I up and, the customer and what experience. I find most
0: surprising in this is people need to do studies to realize this. <laughs> well, but that's what I find like crazy. It's like we all are consumers of things. Right. And and you think about like your your local takeaway restaurant. Every time you go in there and they know your name and they remember what you're about and they and they ask you like how your wife is, or they mm-hmm. make a comment that says I've got some form of knowledge about what you typically order. You're significantly more likely to go back. If that same restaurant that serves the same food takes over new ownership, that all of a sudden is transactional, they could be twice as efficient, twice as quick, with 10% cheaper prices. And you're like, yeah, but they didn't know that my daughter is called Kensington. Mm -hmm. And in the 50 50 gateway decisions,
1: I choose to call somebody else. Yeah. I mean, this is, (laughs) yeah, this is part of the serve and this gets back, let's talk about words, right? So, so I caused a a stir. I put a post out last year on LinkedIn that I think was one of the most engagement I ever got on a post, which was the title was, I'm not your pal. Right? (laughs) And so, when (laughs) sellers (laughs) call me, email me, whatever, and call me pal or buddy, I said, it's a disqualifier. Agreed. And I got all this pushback from people, oh, you're! I can't believe you. You would turn down a great business opportunity because somebody called you pal. It's like the little things matter, right? I mean, I've always gone through my career assuming that I just need to be 1% better than the next person in order to get the deal because it's the little things that make the difference. And here's an instance that I was giving where words make a huge difference. And it's just a 1% difference. So why wouldn't you pay attention to the words? We see it everywhere.
0: And a dictionary definition of what selling is in my mind is is earning the right to make a recommendation. That's what selling is to me. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that's the definition. I'm saying that's my definition. And this earning the right piece is something that too few people are aware of Mm -hmm. in every area. So you cannot send an email to somebody saying, hey, buddy, hey, pal. If they're not your buddy and they're not your pal. Well, it shows you don't care. Well, they have to give you the ability to be able to use those colloquialisms. Right. right. And it's not saying that you cannot use them. It's that you cannot use them without permission, without acceptance. That that level of friendliness has been created. And it, and it can exist, right? It is, is I have relationships with clients that I've worked with for 12 years and I can send a text message and be like, hey, bud, I could really do with a favor on blank.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. And that is fine. Never send it in an email though, which is interesting. And I think one of the greatest things that you can do as a sales professional in 2021 and on is build text-based relationships with your customer base. If you have a relationship that is strong enough that you can text each other Mm -hmm. in a world as noisy as what is happening right now, you've got a strong enough relationship to retain. If you haven't got close enough to text then you're disposable. Interesting. And I think, you know, I've been asked to do lots of trainings around selling virtually. Right. Which people confuse to selling via Zoom, which is a crazy thought in my head, is that the, 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 like this medium of being able to communicate over video sure is important. It isn't what many people are choosing as their preference. It's right. something that is often required through necessity or efficiency. Right. And it isn't selling through Zoom. It's selling without the ability to be able to get on a plane, train, or automobile and show up and be in person, which actually opens up hundreds of means of communication that we should have been given consideration to in the first place. What,
1: which also, quite frankly, is the way most selling's been done. I mean, this is my, my, my pushback with <laughs> virtuals is I tell people, I said, well, let's see. I had asked the question, so when did virtual selling start? People <laughs> start think about it. Well, Zoom was like, you know, Ten years ago, and I said no. When Alexander Graham Bell invented the telephone, is when virtual cell started. Well, so- correct, but you know, or, or fax email existed, or <laughs> right. uh, you know,
0: you had the ability to put a note through somebody's door to be able to create right. an opportunity, or 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 what, what, what? When you send somebody else with a message to carry it by a pigeon, I don't know. Like this, being able to influence from a distance. Has always been it's important. something that is is always an important piece. Yep. And, and what I find fascinating about how the world has changed right now is all that's really happened is your pool of prospects has got wider because geographically, you're not constrained by the same constraints that you once were, mm-hmm. where the only customers you could serve are the ones you could reach by foot. Right, and, and it actually means that building relationships is different. It means that that is multifaceted. Mm-hmm. It's also easier to do if you think about it. And then you put your effort into the work before the work. You talk right. about the importance of, of, of showing that you care.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Instead of sending the email that says, hey, pal, why don't you just take a moment and learn something about the person that you're about to outreach towards. Shocking. Like crazy, crazy, right? Yeah. And then show up and ask some questions about the thing that you found out. Right? Try to impress them with your stalking.
1: Well, Have some interest and curiosity about, what you found out from the stalking. Sure. But, you know, this is all part and parcel of what this other guy was talking about, which was, well, no one wants small talk. And it's like, okay, well, the science is pretty conclusive that small talk Nobody is... Nobody does want small talk. Is, Nobody does want small talk unless the small talk is about them. Uh, exactly. <laughs> That's exactly right. I mean, John Steinbeck, a you know, famous American author, does this quote mm-hmm. that I use all the time, which says, you know, the only story someone is." interest in hearing is a story about them. Yep. My friend,
0: Clint Polver, has just written a beautiful book called I Love It Here, and it's about employee retention. Mm-hmm. And it's about why people go on to be able to um, to proclaim things. Like, when asked about what they think about their place of work, they say things like, I love it here. Right. And, and, and there's a point I interviewed him recently. And he said, what every employee is thinking when they are interviews or when they're in a review or they're being asked to increase their performance is, is let me know about the part when it gets to be about me. Mm-hmm. And, and every customer is the same and every human being on the planet is the same. It's mm-hmm. like, hang on, I'm the center of my universe. Mm-hmm. So, so make it about me. And it doesn't mean that building rapport or is small talk. It means building rapport is having enough empathy about what's important to the other person. Yeah. To then be able to show up in their world is like, like for me, building rapport is understanding that please don't phone me without permission Mm -hmm. because chances are I'm doing something else. Therefore, chances are you interrupted me and then all of a sudden we're on the back foot to start with. If you know me well enough to text me before you call, we're probably going to have a better phone call for Mm -hmm. both of us. And that would be an example of somebody having a good enough relationship that if somebody knew they could text me. Right we'd be more likely to do business together than somebody cold calling me 20 times. It doesn't mean I didn't want a conversation on the phone. Mm-hmm. It meant I didn't want an
1: unannounced conversation right. on the phone. I love that perspective. That's really good. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of, it's taken the, yeah. Well, it gets back to the whole thing. Is, you know, trust is not this one-time one time thing. And trust plays into the customer's willingness to respond to the questions you ask. And, and I think there's a part that, that sellers miss is that you know, customers are in no obligation to answer your questions. And they can answer it one of many ways. Correct. One of which is sort of superficial, get away from here. Or one which is, yeah, let's, let's dig deep into this.
0: What we're being reminded of, though, in this conversation is that doing this job well is hard. Mm-hmm. And nobody's wanted to believe that. Nobody's wanted to be reminded of that. And interestingly, in the past where there wasn't this much transparency... The ones that were getting great results were just doing all of this stuff in the background and Mm -hmm. just taking care of these things and sure their numbers would come in, but there wasn't the scrutiny that was over it as to what exists today. And... In a world where people are looking for shortcuts, nobody wants to hear that what you need to do is to be a genuine human, be a person of your word, be right. able to actually do a ton of research. Right. Everybody wants to be like, how do you master your pitch deck to guarantee a 96% That's close right. rate? And, and you know, what can you do to be able to squeeze an extra 17% of profitability out from your masterful pricing presentation? Mm-hmm. It's not how do you be a better human? It's not how do you build a professional career in your world of sales, right?
1: Oh, not at all. I mean, somebody asked me recently, you know, why are there no old salespeople? And yeah, my response, there are, there are. Well, not many of many. them, are
0: some of the, many of them are some of the world's best entrepreneurs.
1: Oh yeah, but my point is, you see this? I look at the people that I cohort, I started with, and most of them are out of sales. Yeah, it's because they didn't understand this about being. How being human plays into having building a career over a period of time.
0: Almost every great leader and almost every great entrepreneur at some point has had a proven track record of being a wonderful
1: sales professional. Lots of them, for sure. I mm-hmm. mean, if they're not. If they didn't hold the title, they knew how to do it well. Correct. They demonstrated mm-hmm. the behaviors. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. I worked for a series of very technical CEOs who are not sellers, but were great sellers. And mm-hmm. because part we're all, selling, because money, in, we're all in, selling something, right? But in part because they had what most people think technical people don't have, which is they just had good people skills. Right? They were empathetic. They listened. They, you know, my definition of sales is a little different than yours, but similar in some respects. Which is, you know. In sales, our job is to listen to understand what's most important to the buyer and then help them get it.
0: Thank you. That works?
1: Yeah. So <laughs> that requires you to listen. I mean, you can deconstruct that phrase into yeah. you know, the human skills you need to have. But yeah, I think that success in sales, to your point, sales is hard. My first boss taught me. He said, Here's the thing, Andy, selling is simple. Not easy, mm-hmm. and yeah, he always tried to break it down into the most basic, simple component parts. And yeah, you just work on these, and it's hard. There's a lot of complexity around, you know, helping people make decisions and and get them across the finish line. Uh, but the things that you actually do are pretty simple. Yep, we're going to
0: see a change in the in the sales environment in the years that head on from now because. Fewer opportunities are going to be inbound. And by which what I foresee in this is that the uh, lots of services are hitting capacities. And the innovation is marginal mm-hmm. and the the customer base is is now about keeping, retaining, sustaining, right. adding new product products, right. etc. And the skill mm-hmm. that is is probably be most overlooked by many organizations from a sales point of view is that skill of prospecting. How do you physically create something out of nothing?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And your definition there of sales of listening to what the buyer is really interesting is dependent upon that individual deciding that they are a potential buyer,
1: mm-hmm.
0: which isn't always the case. Right. I was speaking to a group of professionals the other day, and I had to remind them that a key part of their job description was to interrupt somebody's day for long enough to help them uncover a problem that they perhaps didn't realize they had. Right to help them understand how beneficial that solution could be them in their their unique circumstances, and then present them with an option for change of which that option includes you and then help them realize that you're the best of those options. Mm -hmm. Like that whole process in many ways is the entire job of a sales professional that needs to generate new business to create something from nothing. Right. And that's a whole new level of hard. And you cannot do that, not without good people skills, but without being good people. Yes, and we don't even need the skills on the other It like, being good has people. to be a, like a, a good people part of this, right? Uh, and I think leaders listening into this right now is is give consideration to that in your recruitment.
1: Yeah, and I I agree 100. percent. I mean I <laughs> I ask people all the time. So how are you factoring in values and character when you hire somebody in an interviewing mm-hmm. process? And almost never do they have an answer for that. Nope. And there was a great book written by a guy uh, Tony Chan. T J A N. Yes. Do you know that book? Called Good uh, People. Yes. And yeah, Tony's book was all about this should drive. Hire good people first, above everything else. Prioritize that above all. Else. He had some great examples in there about questions to ask, about, you know, trying to sort of winnow out ideas of what the person's character and value are. And yeah, I'm a huge believer in that. If you do that, you go a long way to starting off on the right the right foot. Because I think that one of the problems we have, not getting too far off the track, but is we assume the people we're hiring into sales roles or just the work world in general have these basic sort of abilities to be human. And and I think that what we should be doing, like when we onboard new salespeople, is yes. let's 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 spend a while first to train the person and then we'll train the seller. Hmm. And
0: and in that though, there's a whole bigger conversation that we probably need another five other episodes to be able to dig into, is how do comp plans affect that? Oh yeah? Because I I, I haven't read many comp plans and I use the word read comp plans on purpose Mm -hmm. that encourage the type of behaviors that are necessary to drive retention and long-term customer satisfaction. I agree. I agree. and It's a consideration for organizations that move from hyper-growth mode to Mm -hmm. saying, how do we stabilize, retain, build a long-standing 50-year brand? Is the time to say, well, hang on. Is our comp plan supportive of the fact that we're going to create
1: an environment for employees and customers that want to live around
0: here a lot longer?
1: Yeah. Bigger discussion because and we've had some of those on the show about okay has quota outlived its usefulness has mm-hmm. quota as a trigger for compensation outlived its usefulness um and yeah i think it has uh for the reasons you talk about in part because it encourages behaviors that that aren't in the best interest of the company or the customer uh but we can't seem to get away from it and there is another way of looking at it though
0: sure a- and sometimes it is just raising the floor as opposed to the ceiling is, is using tools like quotas to say there is a minimum performance standard here that allows you to be able to, quote, unquote, do your job. Mm-hmm. But everything up from that is in addition, right? Like this is what is to be celebrated or rewarded, or what else is to be celebrated or rewarded in terms of behaviors or outcomes or new metrics or new KPIs. right? Um, and it's not change for change's sake. I think some of this is just going back to to what has always worked.
1: Yeah. Well, I, certainly some of it requires a willingness on the part of leadership to actually um, change the culture. Yeah. Yep. Like somebody yesterday in a uh, meeting I had is is yeah I worked for this one CEO for I don't know better part of four years. We didn't have quotas or a comp plan. And I never made more money you know, at the top to that point in my sales career. I mean, we were doing well, and I never yep. really knew exactly how much I was getting paid. But it was always great, and it was a great environment, and I loved working there, and to your friend's book. Um, and so there's this trust, right, that exists. But you knew you were going to make enough. And I knew I'd be treated fairly.
0: Yeah, but you also knew you'd make enough. You sure. knew that your rent was paid, your mortgage was paid, that you could cover your bills in the way that you needed to. So there wasn't this fear driving through you that says, if I don't, I will die. No, no. Which is that safety from the floor up thing, right? It's just having enough confidence that you can, you can do your job and regardless of what circumstances present you with, that you're okay. And I,
1: lots of sales roles drive this culture of fear. Oh well, it comes from the managers themselves, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, yeah. they're fearful, and I think this is one of the reasons we're sort of in this environment we are. At least, certainly in some of the tech spaces, is that you know managers are driving so hard on the KPIs and the metrics because they're afraid of doing anything that will perturb their own metrics and KPIs, and take right. a risk and try to do something different. And so we're. Big, big conversation in that stuff. Yeah. So, all right, we'll leave that to the next time and we'll definitely do that. So, Phil, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. So, if people want to connect with you, what's the best way to do that? Uh, You can find me wherever you're looking pretty much if you use my middle initials.
0: So, if you go into a search engine and and hit Phil space M space Jones, you'll find me. in a variety of places online. What I would say is, is that if there are questions that have come out of today or things that you've implemented that you want to follow up on, come reach out on LinkedIn. Come uh, find me on Instagram. And I'd love to continue the conversation with anybody that's listened to the show. And, and let me know where you first heard about me and, and reference Andy's name. And then I can thank, thank him for,
1: for his brilliance too. All right. Well, Phil, thank you very much. And uh, we'll look forward to doing this again. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. As always, I'm so grateful for your support of this show, and I want to thank my guest, Phil M. Jones, for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And, as always, thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.